On the morning of the 9th of January 1923, a brutal and horrifying execution took place at Holloway Prison in London. The condemned young woman screamed and cried, but no last-minute reprieve arrived. Just before 9am, her jailers injected her with a sedative and then offered her brandy as well to calm her nerves. It still took four people to drag her out to the brick shed where her end awaited. She was strapped into a bosun's chair. A white hood was put over her head and a noose around her neck. She was barely conscious when, at the stroke of nine, the trapdoor opened and she fell to her death. At exactly the same time, in a different prison a mile away, the man she loved fell also. She was buried in the prison grounds, and for decades her family begged in vain to be told where her grave was located. Hers had been a life of passion and fantasy, a whirlwind of imagination she created to escape a humdrum suburban existence. Her lover always maintained that the murder they were hanged for was his idea alone, but she was convicted by a jury immersed in the strict moral code of a bygone era that saw her frankness, love of romance and enjoyment of sex as proof of guilt enough. Long after she was dead, her story would inspire authors like James Joyce, E.M. Delafield, Dorothy L. Sayers, Sarah Waters and more. You can find traces of it in many detective novels published in the decades since. This is the story of Edith Thompson. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. It's not hard to see why the life and death of Edith Thompson proved so captivating for crime writers and the general public alike. It reads like a ready-made morality tale or an inverted fairy story in which the heroine finds her prince only for her happily ever after to turn into a nightmare that ends in the hangman's noose. It caused a sensation while it was happening in 1922 and it has continued to fascinate people ever since. The events themselves, what we would call the plot, if this was a novel rather than a horrifyingly true story, are shocking enough but it's really the characters and backgrounds of the people involved that make this tale so compelling. And to really understand that, we need to go right back to the beginning. Edith Graydon was born on Christmas Day in 1893 in East London. She was the eldest of five children of prosperous lower-middle-class parents. Her father William was a clerk and her mother Ethel a housewife whose father was a policeman. William also had a part-time job as a dancing teacher and his daughter grew up to love performing. She left school at the age of 15 in 1909 and worked in the fashion industry, doing well at a London millinery firm. She was promoted several times until she became their chief buyer and even travelled twice to Paris for work. Before the idea of the flapper had really taken strong hold in the British psyche, Edith exhibited a lot of the traits associated with that 1920s stereotype. She was a hard-working career woman, she loved to have fun, she put off having children, she had bobbed hair, she spoke French. The list goes on. In 1909, Edith also met Percy Thompson, 
a shipping clerk three years her senior. They were engaged for six years, eventually getting married in 1916 when Edith was 21. She kept working, and the pair initially lived in Southend, before buying a house in the outer East London borough of Ilford. The Thompsons live what appeared to be a happy, comfortable married life. But judging by what happened next, it would seem that Edith was actually bored or even depressed at her newly suburban, grown-up existence. The fateful meeting that would set Edith on the course to that bosun's chair happened in 1920, when she reconnected with a young man she had first met nine years before, when he took dancing lessons from her father. Frederick Bywaters was now an 18-year-old ship's laundry steward, who was handsome and full of stories about all his travels at sea. He was already friendly with Edith's younger sister Avis, and it seems that Percy liked him too at first, because all four of them went on holiday that summer to the Isle of Wight. Afterwards, Percy suggested that Frederick lodge with the Thompsons in Ilford on the rare occasions that he got leave from his ship, and Bywaters accepted. What happened next feels inevitable now, looking back at this story with the advantage of hindsight, but I'm sure as Edith was living it, she felt like every glance from Frederick held a new and fascinating potential to save her from her humdrum existence. Not long after returning from that summer holiday, she and Frederick began an affair conducted under her husband's nose at the house in Ilford. Of course, Percy found out. In the ensuing argument, Frederick demanded that her husband allow Edith a divorce so the lovers could be together. But Percy just raged and banished him from the house. Edith said later that Percy became violent afterwards, hitting her several times and throwing her across the room. Frederick went to sea again for his job in September 1921 and remained away for a whole year. It's not hard to imagine the despair that Edith faced while he was away her boring suburban life rendered even worse by the deteriorating state of her marriage. The really remarkable part of this story, and ironically the thing that probably influenced the jury at Edith's trial the most, is what she did during that year that Frederick was away at sea. She wrote and sent him more than 60 long love letters, that's at least one a week for a year, that were informed by her love of literary and romantic fiction. There was over 50,000 words altogether, including details about Edith's life, her feelings, her memories and her reading habits. In 1922, Frederick returned to London on leave, and he and Edith reconnected. On the 3rd of October, Edith and her husband were walking home from Ilford Station late at night after going to the theatre in central London, when a man jumped out from behind some bushes by the road and attacked Percy with a knife. The attacker ran away, and, fatally wounded, Percy died before help arrived. Later, neighbours reported hearing a woman screaming, no, don't, repeatedly at the time of the attack. When the police arrived, Edith identified the attacker as Frederick Bywaters and explained his connection to herself and her husband. I can only assume that she was confident at this point that she was considered to be just a witness to the crime, otherwise it seems like a strangely helpful way for a murder suspect to behave. It was only after detectives had investigated Bywaters and found all of Edith's letters that he had kept that she was drawn into the investigation proper. The letters, you see, contained references to certain thrillers that Edith had read, including one called Belladonna by Robert Hitchens, in which a wife poisons her husband, as well as frequently declaring her passionate love for Frederick. These missives also hinted at her desire that he should replace Percy as her husband, possibly using violent means to bring this about, if necessary. At one point, she claimed to Frederick that she'd tried to murder Percy by putting ground-up glass in his mashed potato. She also made reference to a young woman who'd lost three husbands, 
while she, Edith, can't even lose one. This was enough, apparently, for the police to invoke the law of common purpose, under which all those who plan a murder share criminal liability for it, even if only one physically carried out the attack. The letters, with their inclusion of husband-murder tropes, hinted at Edith's complicity in the attack, the police felt. Both Frederick and Edith were arrested and charged with Percy's murder. Edith Thompson and Frederick Bywaters were tried together at the Old Bailey in London. The proceedings opened on the 6th of December, 1922. They both had famous lawyers defending them. Edith's barrister Henry Curtis Bennett had earlier that year appeared for the arsenic poisoner Herbert Rouse Armstrong, and Bywaters lawyer Cecil Whiteley had in 1915 defended the brides-in-the-bath murderer George Joseph Smith. There was a media frenzy surrounding the case already, with papers all over the country running breathless stories about the Ilford murder and the attractive young lovers in the dock. The trial only lasted a few days, because Frederick made it all quite straightforward. He had cooperated fully with the police, even showing them where the knife he had used to stab Percy was hidden. He insisted throughout that he had acted completely alone and without Edith's knowledge, and that she was utterly innocent of the crime. He said that his own intention had not been to murder Percy, but to confront him and frighten him into agreeing to release Edith from their marriage. Frederick explained that he had lost his temper when Percy seemed to find the idea funny, and that's when things turned violent. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. The case against Edith looked like it would easily collapse. There was no material evidence to link her to the planning of the crime, beyond the vague suggestions in her letters to Frederick. 
and her lawyer felt sure that he could argue those represented merely an infatuated woman's fantasies, rather than any concrete intention to act or cause harm. Percy's body was even exhumed, and home office pathologists, including Bernard Spilsbury, who we met in episode 2 during the trial of Dr Crippen, could find no evidence that he'd been fed glass or poison, as the letters suggested. This gave weight to the idea that what Edith had written in the letters was really just the result of her imagination running wild, and could therefore be discounted in court. So how did it all go so wrong for Edith Thompson? Afterwards, her lawyer put her conviction down to the fact that she'd insisted on giving evidence in her own defence. Her biographer, René Weiss, writes that she was convinced that if she spoke, she could convince the jury that her relationship with Frederick was no sordid suburban affair, but rather a grand romantic passion. She had been mortified by hearing her love letters read out tonelessly in court and seeing her parents humiliated and in tears, Vice writes. She felt that she could set the record straight, and as well as securing her own release, she thought she might be able to convince the judge not to sentence Frederick to death. Unfortunately, her appearance seems to have had the opposite effect. She contradicted herself on the witness stand and appeared alternately melodramatic and self-pitying. When asked about what she'd been thinking when she wrote some specific passages in the letters, she said she couldn't remember. The judge, Sir Montague Shearman, particularly seemed inclined against her, since he began the part of his summing up that referred to her without even using her name. As for the woman, he declared, disapprovingly, before going on to remind the jury of their duty to deliver a verdict only based on the evidence actually presented in the case. The guilty verdict was delivered on the 11th of December. Both Edith and Frederick were sentenced to death by hanging. To the salacious delight of the newspaper reporters in the press gallery, Edith collapsed in hysterics at the news, while Frederick shouted loudly about her innocence. Since he was nine years younger than her, commentators enjoyed portraying him as an innocent youth led astray by a manipulative older woman. He was a mere romantic, chivalrous boy, one wrote. Of course, this could have been what happened. If Edith Thompson was indeed manipulative enough to have pushed Frederick Bywater's buttons until he stabbed her husband to death, it is possible that she could also have put on her extraordinary contradictory courtroom performance because she thought it would muddy the waters and get him a lighter sentence. It seems less likely, though, than the theory that René Weiss and others have put forward. Edith was just a sentimental, flighty young woman who completely lost her head when her romantic lover took things too far. A big part of her miscalculation was in how the public, and crucially the jury, would respond to her letters. It's possible, of course, that Edith thought Frederick would destroy them, so they could never be read by anyone. There was a heavy vein of sexism in the way that the case against her was built, because the prosecution argued that her love of fanciful romantic books led her to indulge in lethal fantasies that eventually led to action. They made no such claim about Bywaters, of course, who was reading all this stuff too. There were still ideas around in the 1920s about the harmful effect of romantic or sentimental fiction on women. It had lingered for a long time because it's the same trope that Jane Austen was making fun of when she wrote Northanger Abbey in 1803. Frederick did say during the trial that Edith liked to read a book and imagine herself as the character in the book, 
not thinking that the jury would take that as an indication that she actually wanted to act out the role of murderess in the thrillers that she enjoyed reading. Edith's biographer Renee Weiss has also hinted at a theme I discussed in the first episode of this podcast as an explanation for why she was convicted without any substantial evidence against her. In 1922, Britain was still gripped by the idea, compounded by the figures released for the 1921 census, that the country contained over a million more women than men after all of the male casualties in the First World War. As I showed in that episode, this isn't strictly correct in demographic terms, but this idea of the surplus women as disposable and unwanted was a powerful force regardless. And to social conservatives at the time, Edith Thompson was not a womanly woman. She worked, she danced, she'd been married for six years without having a child, so presumably used contraception. And she wrote in her letters to Bywaters about how she enjoyed sex and had had an abortion. If guilty, she had also brought about the needless deaths of two men. Seen in this light, it's no wonder she was sentenced to death. She was a surplus woman, Britain would be better off without. Her lawyers did appeal the verdict, but unsuccessfully. There was even a public petition to stop the executions of Edith and Frederick, with over a million signatures, but that was rejected too. Less than a month after her conviction, Edith was dragged into that shed at Holloway Prison and hanged. As well as being almost unconscious when it happened, she also bled a lot. Eyewitnesses said it looked like her insides fell out. Subsequent commentators, including Weiss, have interpreted this as a miscarriage, suggesting that it was possible that Edith was pregnant. If so, she should never have been hanged. The law of the time forbade it. Even if not, it was rare for a woman to be hanged at all. Edith was the first in 16 years. The influence of this case on the crime writers of the day was profound and long-lived. The real events were so dramatic and improbable that they couldn't help but capture the imaginations of those who made this stuff up for a living. Martin Edwards documents many of their reactions in his book The Golden Age of Murder, so I recommend seeking that out if you're interested in learning more. The first novel to appear based on this so-called Ilford murder came out just a year after Thompson's execution. Messalina of the Suburbs by E.M. Delafield. You might know her as the author of the semi-autobiographical Diary of a Provincial Lady, but she was also a novelist and close friend of the Golden Age detective writer Anthony Barclay. He also dwelt on the idea of a wife inciting a lover to murder her husband a few times in different books, most overtly in 1939's As for the Woman, and in 1937, the authors who made up the famous Detection Club, which we'll be learning more about in a future episode, by the way, published a book of true crime essays titled The Anatomy of Murder, in which Barclay wrote about Edith Thompson. Unhappily married and prone to outside passions himself, he felt strongly that she was executed for adultery, he said, rather than for an actual crime. One of the most interesting novels to be influenced by the case was The Documents in the Case, a 1930 collaboration between Dorothy L. Sayers and the scientist Robert Eustace. The whole story is told through letters and documents relevant to the case, so the reader feels as if they are playing the role of detective themselves. It too features a young wife, a sort of suburban vamp, they call her, who starts an affair with the lodger and is therefore ambiguously implicated in her lover's later actions. It's perhaps not as pacey as a Lord Peter Whimsey novel, and it is a bit too wrapped up in the ingenious technicalities of the murder method rather than having properly compelling characters, 
but it's an interesting take on the relationship dynamics nonetheless. The actor Frank Vosper, who would go on to star in Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much and die in suspicious circumstances himself in 1937, wrote a play about Edith Thompson and Frederick Bywaters called People Like Us. It opened in London in 1929, but was swiftly banned by the Lord Chamberlain because of its supposedly racy content, and then remained unperformed until 1948. This play is in turn referenced in Agatha Christie's 1949 novel Crooked House, when an actress suggests that a murder in the family is the ideal time to put on the Edith Thompson play, and that, quote, there's quite a lot of comedy to be got out of Edith Thompson. I don't think the author realised that. Exactly what Agatha Christie thought was funny about this case, sadly, remains undocumented. Alfred Hitchcock was actually closely connected to this case as well, since he'd been a pupil at Edith's father's dancing school and remained friends with her younger sister, Avis. He apparently considered making a film about Edith's demise a number of times, but never actually did, perhaps out of feeling for her sister. However, there are traces of the case in his 1950 film Stage Fright, and in the 1941 film Suspicion, which stars Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine, and uses ground glass as a murder weapon. Incidentally, this film is actually drawn from Anthony Barclay's 1932 novel, Before the Fact. Novelists and filmmakers are still finding inspiration in the case and the works it spawned today, as well as the 2001 film Another Life, the writer Sarah Waters has written about how it was Fringe Tennyson Jesse's 1934 novel about Edith Thompson, A Pin to See the Peep Show, that first gave her the idea for the setting of her 2014 bestseller, The Paying Guests. All of the Thompson-inspired novels give a vision of suburbia filled with seedy clerks and sulky housewives, she's said, which seemed to Waters still an ideal setting for a thrilling story of murder. In November 2018, Edith Thompson's body was lifted out of the mass grave in Brookwood Cemetery, where it had been laid when Holloway Prison was rebuilt in 1971. After the Ministry of Justice finally allowed an exhumation, an ambulance took it to the City of London Cemetery, where it was laid in the same grave as her mother and father, just as her parents had always wanted. She might be at rest at last, but the story of Edith Thompson lives on. It's too extraordinary to be forgotten. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Next time on She Done It, Dining with Death.